Welcome to the Celebrate Community Church of Yankton podcast. My name is Jeff Todd, and I have the privilege of serving as pastor of this amazing church community here in Yankton, South Dakota. Our episode today is from our series, Happy Days. Does worshiping God bring joy to your life? Is Sunday morning a struggle, or is it the highlight of your week? In this series, Happy Days, we will walk through the letter to the Philippians and discover the wonderful gift of joy which God has placed in all those who love Him. Again, if you're a guest, we want to say welcome home. We're glad that you're joining us. If you're watching online or listening to our podcast, uh, happy 4th of July. We're, we're glad that you're here. We've been in a series called Happy Days. We talked about that already, and we've, we've been through this on this journey now for several weeks. And I just want to let you know before we get started here at church, I am so excited about this message. I mentioned it at the end of last week about how um, just pumped up I am to share this with you. Uh, many of you know that I, I take a lot of time to, to plan out our series. We actually have our series planned all the way through the end of the year. I'm currently working on 2022. And the reason why I say that is because every so often when you're doing that and you're pre- prepared and planful and, and prayerful about what God wants to share, every once in a while God will change course a little bit. And this week, actually, God had kind of changed course. What I was going to share uh, is, is a little bit different now, and, and I really feel this is the right time to do this. Um, I'm excited about this. One, one of the things that's interesting is I didn't plan it this way, but this fits perfectly with the 4th of July. It's funny how God lines that up. And what I'm trying to say here is the message that I have today from God that I feel like God is sharing with our church is the greatest message you can possibly hear. Not because it's from me, but, but this is the greatest message ever told, and, and it's so important. And, and I'll just have to say it. Why, one of the reasons why I've been really wrestling with this message is because it really exceeds my ability to communicate it. What, what God has to share with you today far exceeds my ability to communicate it. So before I try to take a stab at this, I want us to pray. But, but as I pray, I don't want you to pray with me. What I'm really coveting right now is that you would pray for me and that you would pray that God would speak through me and that God would open our hearts and minds to listen to that. So let's, let's go to prayer. God, again, you know how much I've wrestled with this message. You, you know how much, I, how I'm excited I am, God. And God, I just, I pray. I, I, I just, I feel the prayers of the people in this room that are lifting me up to you right now. And I just want to get out of your way, God. I want to be a vessel for you. I pray that your words would come forth, God. Because again, this is, this, what we're going to share today is the heart of who we are as, as followers of you. And God, it's the greatest message. It has the greatest consequences both in this life and for all eternity. So God, I pray again that your spirit would just come. I pray that you would open the hearts and minds of those in this room and and listening online. And we ask this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you, church. If you remember last week, we left off on a verse where we talked about, we're talking about joy in the face of relationships. And the verse we left off was Philippians 2.5. And I'm just, by refresher, just going to go back and look at that again. Philippians 2.5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now, I'm going to ask a question here. It's going to seem a little bit odd. But, but we want to talk about how do we have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So the question I have for you, and I want to show hands, okay? This is audience participation. If you're watching online, just give us a thumbs up. Give us a like. You can participate that way as well. But show of hands, how many of you would say, I really like the old hymns? The, the old church hymns. Yeah, there you go. Those my, I, I like the old hymns too. 
I grew up in church, and, and I love those old traditional hymns. And, and some of you might say, well, Pastor, if you like those old hymns, how come we don't sing them that much? Well, here's the thing I want to help you know. It's not about me. <laughs> church isn't about me and, and what I like and what I want. It's about what God wants us to do. But, but one of the things that I find interesting, when we say the term old hymn, what we're typically talking about is we're talking about the hymns that were probably within the last century, 150 years, those types of things. But, but here's what I want you to know, church. The Church of Jesus Christ has been around for about two millennia. <laughs> so, so when we talk about the last 150 years of music, we're not talking about old hymns. We're talking about recent, recent hymns. And, and one of the things that I think is interesting, we've had, the, you know, music's very controversial in church. If you want to have a fight with somebody in church, fight about music. You'll get all kinds of opinions and, and stuff. And some people will say things like, oh, we shouldn't have secular music in church. Like, we shouldn't have, like, songs from the world in church. It should just be God's church music is what we should have in church. And to that, I always say, I don't think you know your history very well. Because <laughs> here's what I want you to know. A lot of those old hymns that we love so much and, and know so familiar, if you don't know this, a lot of those were old drinking songs. <laughs> You see, the reformers back in the 19th century, a guy named Charles Wesley, who's a big part of our denomination, they would go into the bars, and they would hear the music that the, the people would be singing in bars. And they would take the tunes and the notes, and they would change the words to match the theology of Jesus. And so when people would come to church, they'd hear these old tunes that sound familiar to them, but they would change them a little bit, and they'd talk about Jesus. And that's a lot of the old hymns that we know today. Isn't that funny how the history of that works? So, so why am I telling you all this? Where am I going with this? Because I think music is a very profound thing in our lives. I think the reason why we like music and why we have even not only just hymns, but our song style, our song taste is very personal to us. Because it can impact us in mighty ways. And, and music, we've used music in church as a way to communicate powerful truths about our theology. And this goes all the way back, not only our generation, but all the way back to the beginning. So here's my point in saying all this. The passage we're going to look at today, Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, is actually a first century hymn. I don't know if you knew that. So when we're talking about old hymns, right, I was saying before, this is like one of the oldest hymns that we know of that was actually from way back in the first century. It's a passage of scripture. Now, there's a little bit of disagreement. I, I don't know if you follow like Christian scholars, those types of things, but there's a little bit of a disagreement. When they read this passage, some scholars believe that Paul was actually sampling this hymn. Like he was quoting this music in his letter so the people would know it and they would recognize it. Oh yeah, I know that hymn. Some scholars think that. Some scholars believe that this actually was written by Paul and the early church took this passage because it was so good, so great, and they actually turned it into a hymn, so, so you know, they, they use it as that. So whether, whether Paul actually wrote this or whether Paul was sampling it, can I give you my official scholarly position on that? I don't give a rip, okay? I don't care which way it was. The point is, is from this passage, it expressed a deep, profound, and theological truth that the church needed to understand. And, and one of the reasons why, going back to my music conversation, if you remember, at that time, back in the first century, many people were illiterate. Many people were un uneducated. When Paul would write a letter to a church, there's probably only one or maybe two people in that church that could actually even read that. So most of the time, they would perform it, and they would read it out loud. And so to help people understand that, they would develop these songs to help them know this. Think about, if you want to make it practical to today, think about preschoolers, right? Little preschoolers, they can't read, they can't write, but what do they do a lot of? Sing songs, don't they? 
A, B, C, right? You know what I'm saying? That's why we learn through music. So this passage, when you read this, and, and this week as you're reading Philippians, which I hope you do a lot, and if you haven't been, now's a good time to do it. As you come to this passage, I want you to understand this is actually one of the oldest known hymns in Christianity. So with that, let's take a look at it. Philippians 2, verse 6. Who, being in very nature God, talking about Jesus here, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Church, the passage that we just read is not only an ancient hymn, one of the oldest we have in Christianity. The passage that we just read is one of the most profound truths about who Jesus really truly is. And, and this is central, not only to this message, not only to this series, this message of who Jesus is is central to who we are as believers in Christ and why we're on this planet. So if you got your note sheet, I want you to go ahead and take them out. This is our, our, our note sheets on the back side. It's blank. I want you to write some things down every week. I encourage you to take notes. And so here's the first thing that I want you to know. There's three things that Paul tells us about who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? And, and, and with that, why is Jesus so significant? Why is this the greatest thing in all human history? The first thing you need to write down about Jesus is Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Now, that statement, I think, is more radical than we give credit for. I think sometimes as, as followers of Jesus, we've become so familiar with that Jesus is God, Jesus is God, that we fail to really understand what we're actually saying when we make the statement, Jesus is God. See, here's the thing, church, you need to understand. Jesus either was God or he wasn't God. There's no middle road. He either was God or he wasn't. Can I help you with something? I know I'm not God. <laughs> Do you know that about yourself? So for Jesus to be God is a very profound statement. Now, there's many in this world who claim Jesus never claimed to be God. I've heard this said multiple times from, from modern scholars that look at that and say, well, Jesus never claimed that he was God. And, and, and I, I don't want to argue with people like that. I love them. But here's what I want you to know. You haven't read the New Testament, then have you? Here's, a, here's just a couple examples. I could, this could be a whole message right here, but I just want to give you a few. In the Gospel of John, one of the four Gospels of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Gospel of John, the Gospel of John is set up in a very strategic way. It talks about seven miracles that Jesus performed, but there's also structured around seven I am statements. Jesus made seven I am statements in the Gospel of John, and each one of those I am statements said, I am God. In fact, the word I am, if you look back with what the Hebrew meant for that, actually means the name of God. The I am. So for Jesus to say, I am the bread of life. I am the water. I am the way, the truth, the life. What he's saying is, I am God. There's more. Here's one that I think we take for granted too. As we read the New Testament so many different times in so many different places, 
Jesus would look at somebody and say, your sins are forgiven. Think about that statement. As a human being, I have power to ask for forgiveness. I have the power to give forgiveness of offenses you've committed against me. For Jesus to say to somebody, your sins are forgiven, is so highly offensive because it means all of your sins, everything you've committed, is forgiven. Who has that kind of authority besides God? But even if you want to argue all those, and people like to argue, and they'll go all that way, here's the thing. This is kind of what I always say, the nail in the coffin for the claim of Jesus Christ to be God. Jesus Christ was crucified because he made the statement. He stood, and you can read this in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He stood before the high priest, and he said, tell me, are you God? And Jesus looked at the high priest and said, I am. And at that, the high priest tore his robes. If you know anything about Jewish culture, when the high priest tore their robes, it meant somebody blasphemed in their presence, which meant that Jesus claimed to be God. And he said, what more do we need? This man deserves to die. Jesus died for the fact that he claimed to be God. If you disagree with that, you don't understand your scripture. But many people would say, well, okay, Jesus said he was God, right? Jesus claimed that he was God. Sure, pastor, Jesus claimed to be God, but he wasn't actually God. Of course he wasn't actually God. You know, he was like a good moral teacher. He said a lot of good things, and we should follow Jesus, like, like, like we do Buddha, like we do Muhammad. Like we do Confucius. Jesus might have claimed to be God, but he wasn't actually God. And to that response, I always say, for the great C.S. Lewis, his book, Mere Christianity, if you haven't read that book, I highly recommend it. It's probably outside of the Bible, one of the greatest theological studies of the person of Christ you'll ever find. It's on my reading list. I, I'm actually thinking about reading it once a year just because I love it. But I can't say it any better than Lewis says this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. Don't miss this. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I do not accept his claim to be God. This is how Lewis responds. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man that said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He that would either be a lunatic on the level of man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You can take your choice. Either this man is the son of God, or he was crazy, or he was something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come to any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to do it. Jesus was God. Amen. And, and here's what I say. When we struggle with that, here's why we struggle with that, I think. The reason why we struggle with the concept of Jesus being God is if Jesus is God, we have to surrender two truths. The first one is there is a God. Many of us like to live like there's not a God. If we say Jesus is God, then we have to surrender that there is a God. And the second thing, like my joke earlier was, that God's not me. That's a hard thing to surrender, church. We like to live our lives like there is no God and that I'm in charge of my life. And you know what? God will let you live that way. It's just not going to end very well. Here's something you need to understand about Jesus. He is God. He, 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 Paul makes that very clear here. And if you're ready to do that, you have to be ready to give up a throne of your life and let him sit on it. Jesus is God. Here's the second thing that Jesus is, and you want to write this down. Jesus is man. 
Now, you might have heard this before. You sometimes hear this in church. Jesus is fully God and fully man. To which you might say, that's a confusing statement. And it is. So, so why, do we, why is it important to know that Jesus was man? There was a belief called Gnosticism back in the first century. And this is what this belief was. That, that Jesus did come. Jesus was God. But Jesus wasn't actually man, too. He was kind of more like God and a spirit. Like, he, he wasn't actually flesh and bone. And, and church, that, that's, that's a great heresy, and it still exists to this day. And a lot of the New Testament responds to this, and Paul's actually talking about this here, where he said, yes, Jesus was fully God, but he's also fully man. See, he was born. He grew up. He went to school. He ate food. He cried. He got sad, he got angry, he got tired, he slept, he got frustrated with others. <laughs> Did you know Jesus got frustrated? <laughs> he loved his parents, he felt compassion for others, he was tempted in every way possible. See, Jesus was man, flesh and bone. Now, you might say again, okay, how is that possible? And I could stand up here and I could go the theological route and I could talk to you about the concept of the Trinity. I could talk to you about the concept of an eternal God. I can talk to you about incarnation. I study all those things and we could have that conversation, but I think it's the wrong question. See, the wrong question is not how was he man. The better question is why. Why would God become a man? And look at what Paul says in Philippians, verse 7. Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Why would God have to become a man? How many of you remember the phrase, maybe you heard this when you were kids, takes one to know one, right? Usually when you insult somebody, they say, takes one to know one, right? Why did God have to be man? Because it takes one to know one. And here, I want you to stay with me on this. Go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. If you want to go there, Genesis 3, you can go back there and look. But, but here's what I'm going to tell you about. Way back at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 3, remember God created perfection. He created all paradise. Everything was perfect. Everything was wonderful. And then he created man. <laughs> and, and we screwed it up, didn't we? Right? And God gave us the one rule. He said, listen, the one rule is you've got to trust me. You've got to trust that I'm God and you're not. And, and there's this tree here. And you have a choice. You, you can take this tree. But if you do, there's going to be consequences. And I love you and I don't want you to have that. God gave us that choice. And what did we do? <laughs> we ran to that tree as fast as we could. Just like little kids. We wanted to get there and see. And, and many people believe that the sin of the Garden of Eden was what? Eating the apple, right? We had the fruit. We ate it. And that was a sin. That wasn't actually the case. See, there, there's really kind of three parts to it. And, and again, you can look at this in Genesis 3. I'm not going to go there. But there was really three things that the fruit did. We, we, we struggled with. The temptation of the garden is really these three things. You might want to write them down. First one was food. The Satan, uh, the, the Eve had said, when I looked at the, the fruit, it was, looked like it was good for food. Here was the second temptation, our Security. Security. The serpent had told Eve, surely you won't die. You can eat this. You won't die. God's not going to kill you. You'll be safe. But the third one was really the attraction, and that was power. Food, security, and power. Because what Satan had told Eve is your eyes will be open, and you will be like God. That was the real sin of the Garden of Eden. 
our desire for our own nourishment, our desire for our own security, a desire for our own power. And man fell into that temptation, and as a result of that, we live in a fallen and broken world. And that paradise was lost. But we have good news, church. Here's the good news. God became man. Takes one to know one, doesn't it? God stepped onto the stage of human existence. And if you remember the temptation of Jesus, and again, I'm not going to go there, but in Matthew 4, Luke 4, read it on your own. Jesus was tempted in three specific ways by Satan. And it's going to sound familiar to you. The first one was food. He said, look at all these rocks. You turn all these rocks to bread, Jesus, and you can eat whatever you want. The second one was his security. Satan took Jesus up to the highest point and said, throw yourself down and the angels will come save you. His security. Here was the third temptation that Jesus faced. Power. Satan said to Jesus, look at all the kingdoms of the world. I will put you in charge of the entire kingdom of the world, Jesus. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. It was a temptation of power. Food, security, and power. And, and remember back in the Garden of Eden when men fell because of those three things and that was the temptation we fell into? You know what Jesus did instead? He stood strong and faced that temptation. And if you remember Matthew 4 and Luke 4, Jesus said over and over again, every time Satan would tempt him in those three ways, he'd say, it is written, it is written, it is written, it is written. I'm not going to fall for your lies. I'm going to stand on the truth of God's word. And just to go a little step further, just, just to give you this, every passage that Jesus quoted to fight that temptation came from the book of Deuteronomy. Why is that significant? The book of Deuteronomy, if you were a little Jewish rabbi like Jesus was, he probably had that book memorized. He read it over and over and over and over again. That's what the word Deuteronomy means, over and over and over and over and over again. So when he was out in the desert, when he was hungry, when he was weak, when he was feeling a little insecure, you know what he came back to? God's word. He stood on those promises and he was able to resist the temptation. Church, I don't want you to miss what I'm about to say. How much more do you and I have to know God's word? Why are we trying to read the letter of Philippians 300 times? It should be ingrained in us. It should be in our heart. Because if Jesus was God, as a man, needed to have God's word that way, how much more do you and I need to have that to avoid the temptation? But here's what I want you to understand. The temptation, it didn't end in the desert for Jesus. Because Jesus was man. His whole entire life, he continued to face this over and over and over again. I want you to go back to look at verse 6, the second half of what verse 6 says. He, meaning Jesus, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. I love that phrase. This is a, there's a lot of translations about that verse. I use this one particularly because I like it the best. Because it said, equality with God is not something to be used to his own advantage. Back in the Garden of Eden, I said the enemy lied. That's not exactly true. He did tell Adam and Eve the truth. They did become like God. They did become knowing good and evil. And because they were able to think like God, we, as their descendants, have a human capacity for a few things. As human beings, we have the capacity to lie. Did you know that? We have the ability to deliberately tell something, something that's not true in order to manipulate them to get something we want out of it. We have the ability to lie. You know what I call that? Using it to our own advantage, isn't it? We do that. You know what else we can do? We can manipulate people. We can manipulate situations to make it used to our own advantage. 
Human beings can do horrible, awful things to other human beings. You know another thing we can do? We can commit rape. One of the worst things you can do to another human being is to sexually assault them. We have that capacity. We're able to do that. We can steal from someone else. You know another interesting thing we can do? We can embarrass somebody. Studies say, and I don't have the evidence for this, but I've heard it said that human beings are the only animal that have the capacity to be embarrassed. Isn't that an interesting concept, right? We have the ability to make somebody feel humiliated in front of another group of people. We do it all the time. Why? Because we use that ability to our own advantage. We have the ability to take a life. Now, when a lion takes the life of a deer, it's not murder, it's lunch. When you and I take life from someone else, we're using it to our own advantage. We're, we're taking care of something that not. And see, the key is we like to use that to our own advantage. But, but I want to help you with something, church. Jesus never did that. Jesus had the capacity to do all of those horrible, awful things. And the Bible says not once. Not once did he use any of that stuff to his own advantage. But you know what Jesus did instead as a man? To, to set a model, to set an example for all of the rest of us for all time. You know what Jesus did with this ability, this godlike ability that he had? He was humble. He showed humility. He put other people ahead of his own interests, just like Paul is telling us to do. He was obedient. Jesus had the capacity to disobey God, and he chose every single time to do the right thing. You know what Jesus did? Jesus made sacrifices. He sacrificed his time, he sacrificed his career, he sacrificed all kinds of things for the benefit of other people. You know what Jesus did? Jesus showed grace. A lot of times when it wasn't even deserved, he showed grace. You know the greatest thing that Jesus did, I think? Jesus displayed forgiveness. Even though people would betray him and go against him and ultimately end up killing him, Jesus Forgave, And I want to go back to what Paul says in verse 5 at the beginning of this whole passage. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So my question to you today is, do you use people to your own advantage? Do you do those things? Now, I, you probably haven't raped or murdered anybody. I'm pretty sure of that, right? You might not be in this room. But, but, but what are those things that we do? What are those temptations that we face? And when we do that, are we standing on the promises of God's word? Have we used another person to our own advantage? Or are we like Christ? Do we approach other people with humility? Are we obedient to God? Do we sacrifice for their benefit? Do we show grace? And do we give forgiveness? So who is Jesus? Jesus is God. Absolutely God. And Jesus is also fully God, but he's also fully man. Here's the third one. I want you to write this down because this one, I think, is the key to the other two. So without this third one, we can't understand the first two. Jesus is God. Jesus is man. But Jesus is Lord. Amen. Jesus is Lord. Lord is not a word we use much anymore. It's actually an old English word. Um, and we'll get to that in a second. But I, I, Lord means power. It means authority. It means influence. It means ruler. That's the word Lord means. Let's, let's see what Paul says in verse 9. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. When I hear that, this is why 
I don't get frustrated with people as much as I used to. This is why I don't worry about how I'm perceived as a follower of Jesus Christ as much as I used to. This is why I'm not afraid to live my life the way that I used to be. And in fact, this is why I, don't choose, I choose not to get into arguments anymore. If you don't know this about me, I, I love getting arguments. It's something that I, I just enjoy doing. And I used to love to argue with people about Jesus because I, I knew the truth. And I tell you what, I know a few things about God's Word. I, I, I got some, some information that I could download for you that would help you out. And, and I would approach this in an argumentative way sometimes with people when they would disagree with me because sometimes I'd like the engagement. But I don't do that anymore because here's what I understand, and, and I don't want you to miss this, church. If somebody is resistant to Jesus Christ, it usually means two things. First thing is they're usually probably struggling with their own life. <laughs> That's why they're so resistant to it, right? But, but here's the second thing. One day, their knee will bow and their tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. Every single man, woman, and child, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. God. And here's my prayer, that they do it now. Amen. Because at one point, it's going to be too late. We have the time now to do that. That's why I don't get mad. I don't get argued. This is why I don't understand when Christians freak out about things that happen in the world. And I'm like, really? Jesus is still Lord, isn't he? And we don't have to worry about people that fight against the church because guess what? Eventually, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. We don't need to do that. See, one of the things that as a pastor, I'm around death a lot. It happens. It kind of comes with the territory. I'm not exactly sure why or if it means anything, but recently there's been a lot of deaths in my life. There's been a lot of people that I know that have died, some of them very suddenly. And, and I just want you to know every time, every time, I have to ask the question, did I do everything that I should have done to make sure that this person knows Jesus Christ? Because now it's too late. There will come a point where it's too late for them. And, and, and I struggle with that sometimes. And, and I think it's interesting because when I talk to people, and, and I'm guilty of this myself when I say, you know, when I struggle to share Jesus with people, sometimes our reasons is because, well, I might be embarrassed. Or I don't know what to say. I don't want to make it awkward. You know what's going to be really awkward? When you stand before Jesus one day and they're on the other side. And they say, why don't you tell me? Why didn't you know? Because at that point, it's going to be too late, church. See, we, we, we need to understand who Jesus is. Jesus is Lord. We don't need to be embarrassed by that. We don't need to be ashamed of that. We need to stand up and proudly proclaim it. And when people resist it, it's usually because there's something going on in their life. But the second thing is true as well. Pray for them. That's what Jesus said. Pray that God will reveal it in their heart. Love them as an example of Christ so they can understand that Jesus is Lord. But here's the problem, and this is what I see in my own life. And hopefully you can relate to that too. We don't like Jesus as Lord. You know what we like Jesus as? We like Jesus as Savior. Right? We like Jesus. Jesus, save me. Jesus, save me from my sins. Jesus, save me in my relationship. Jesus, save me from my problems. And I just want to help you with something. All that's true. It's not a bad thing for Jesus to be your Savior. But you know the problem with the Savior? I can put a Savior back up on the shelf. I can say, okay, Jesus, come and save me. I need you right now in this situation now that I'm good. Okay, now, Jesus, you go back over there again. That's what we do with the Savior. We like to take him off and use him when we need to and put him back away. Well, church, I got something to say to you today. Jesus is your Lord. 
You know what that means? He means he has a power and authority over your life. It means you give him every influence. It means he's the master and ruler. And Jesus isn't Lord until you surrender to him. We don't like to do that, do we? We like to be our own Lord. We like to understand that. Now, I'm going to do something here that I think I'm pretty cool. I'm pretty excited about, but I don't want you to miss what, what we're talking about here. We've already said that today is the 4th of July. Today we're celebrating the Declaration of Independence. 225 years ago, these famous words were written by Thomas Jefferson. And a country was founded, and, and if I could just put it real simple to you, you know how much I love history. I love history. Basically, if I could sum up the Declaration of Independence, they sent a letter to King George and said, guess what, you're fired. <laughs> we're we're going to fire you because you're not doing your job. You're not being a very good king, and we have the right to do that. And we're going to establish our own government here that's going to rule on that. And it's a new idea, and it changed the world, literally. And if you know anything about history, there was 55 men who signed the Declaration of Independence. What you may not know is of those 55 men, five of them were captured, tortured, and murdered by the British for signing that. Twelve of them had their homes completely ransacked and burned to the ground. Two of them had sons that died in the Revolutionary War. Two of them had sons that were captured by the enemy during the Revolutionary War. And nine of those 55 men actually fought in the Revolutionary War and gave their lives for one idea. That they said, we want to fire that king. And we're going to set up a new government that's going to literally change the world. And those 55 men, although they might have been flawed, we can agree on that, literally did that and changed the world. Now, why am I saying all that? Because it, it, it's just, I didn't plan it this way, but it just, it's just a beautiful dovetail into what we're just talking about. I, I think we need to fire the king in our lives. I, I think if you're here today or you're watching online or you're listening and you've been the king of your life right now, you need to fire the king in your life. Because he's not doing a very good job. And, and, and instead of declaring our independence like we did back 225 years ago, today what I'm going to ask is for a declaration of dependence. To say to God, Jesus, you are Lord, and I am not. And, and, and what we're going to do, we're going to do something kind of interesting. And, and what I have up here, if you notice, we've had this up here. We have this, is called our Declaration of Dependence. This is nice. This looks like an actual declaration. I'm going to read this to you. I'm going to have it up here. We're going to talk about this. Now, a couple things that I want to share with you about this is, uh, obviously, I've taken some liberties on this, so apologies to Thomas Jefferson in advance. But, but one of the things I want you to know about the Declaration of Independence you may not know, it was never intended to be read. Do you know that? Thomas Jefferson, when he wrote that beautiful document, the Declaration of Independence, it was actually meant to be out loud spoken. Why? Because most people are illiterate and uneducated. So they would take copies of the Declaration, take them to all the 13 colonies, and guys would stand up and they would read it out loud to people so they could see it, they could understand it. That's how it was. So it's the same thing with this document here. I'm going to read this document to you. And I'm calling it our Declaration of Dependence. And after I'm done, what I'm going to do during our last song, I'm going to give you an opportunity to come up here. And I'm going to get you an opportunity to sign your name to our Declaration of Dependence. Now, before you do that, you want to say, okay, what does this say? Well, let me read it to you. In church, July 4th. 2021, the unanimous declaration of the Celebrate Community Church of Yankton. 
When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the bands of sin which has so easily entangled them, and to assume among powers of the earth the separate and equal stations to which the law of nature and the nature of God empower them, a decent respect to the word of God requires that they should declare the causes which invite his grace. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable gifts, that among these are love, forgiveness, and eternal life. That to secure these gifts, Jesus lived among men, deriving his power from the consent of God Almighty. And whatever mankind becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of Jesus to both alter and abolish sin, and to institute a new kingdom, laying its foundations on such principles, and organizing in power in such form as he shall see most likely to affect their lives and eternity. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that free will along established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and self-defeat pursuing invariably the same object convinces the design to reduce them under absolute depotism, it is their right it is their duty to throw off such sin and accept the new guards for their future security. Such has the problem of sufferance of all mankind, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to surrender to Jesus Christ. The history of the present self-reliance is a history of repeated injury and usurpations, all having direct established from the absolute tyranny over ourselves. To prove this, let the facts be submitted to a candid world. We have refused to obey God's law, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. We have neglected to listen to his guidance and withheld good from others. We have forgotten the poor and the needy among us. We have held grudges for sins for others while demanding forgiveness of our own. We have misused the resources given to us and complained about what we do not have. We have made a mockery of his Sabbath in pursuit of our own gains. We have spoken against others who have been made in God's likeness. We have abused his creation, neglecting the stewardship we were given. We have dishonored our parents, our employers, and our leaders. We have misused our bodies and turned other humans into objects to be used for our sexual pleasure. In every stage of these oppressions, we have not petitioned our God in most humble terms. His repeated petitions have been answered only by our repeated neglect. The Prince Jesus who suffers on behalf of our sins is the only fit rule for our people. Nor has God been wanting in our attention to our lives. He has warned us from time to time in attempts by the prophets to extend his warning over us. They have reminded us of the circumstances of our state of actions. They have appealed our native justice and magnanimity and have conjured us by the ties of our common kindred to disavow these usurpations, which would inevitably interrupt our selfishness. But we have been deaf to the voice of justice and continuity. We must therefore acquiesce in the necessity and hold their word as we hold our own. We therefore, the body of Christ in his house, Assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world, 
for their indication of intentions to do in the name and by the authority of Jesus Christ, solemnly publish and declare that these lives are and of a right ought to be totally dependent on Jesus Christ. Therefore, we absolve all selfishness, all connection with our old self. It is ought to be totally dissolved. And as free and dependent children, we have the full power to pray, serve, love, forgive, worship, and do all other acts which the service of Christ may have the right to do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on protection of the divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred faith. Those 55 men that signed the actual Declaration of Independence 225 years ago, it wasn't just writing their name on a document that mattered. See, every single one of those men, when they wrote their name on that document, they also backed it with a unity and an inspiration and a determination resolve into what they were signed for. And some of them would pay for it with their lives. So as we're closing, like I said, we're gonna, as we play the last song, I'm going to invite you to come up here and sign this piece of paper. But, but I'm just going to caution you. <laughs> I want you to make sure and, and do some business with God on this before, just like we're talking about. Who is Jesus in your life? If you're ready to declare your dependence on Jesus, and, and with the little parody that I just gave you there as far as from our Declaration of Independence, are you ready to understand that Jesus is God? Like we talked about. Jesus is God. He wasn't a good moral teacher. He, he is God. And because of that, we need to understand that Jesus is God. We're not. But we have to also understand that Jesus lived as a man. He was tempted in every way that you and I are tempted. And yet he did not fall. He did not use his ability to his own advantage. He used it to love and serve other people. Jesus is God. Jesus is man. But what we're signing here today, if you choose to do so, what you're signing here today is that Jesus is Lord. He's not going to be something convenient when we put up on the shelf, we pull out our lucky rabbit's foot and rub it when we need it and put it away when we don't need it. No, what we're saying is I'm going to surrender my life to Jesus Christ. Even if it costs me my friendship, even if it costs me my job, even if it costs me my life. Now, now, fortunately, we live in a country where many of us may never have to face that. Can I help you with something? That might change. In fact, I'd go on record and say it might change kind of quickly sometimes. Are, are, are you willing? Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to sign your name to that? And I just want to say this again. If you're not, that's okay. Be okay with that. And, and I'm not trying to manipulate or anything. I just want to make sure that you guys understand what we're doing here. Because this is the most, again, I'm just going to go back to what I said before. This is the most important message in all of mankind. The question of who Jesus is. And today, in this day, you really need to answer that self question for yourself. Because it has eternal consequences. And, and, and I'm just going to go on record as saying one more time. There will come a point where every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Don't wait. Make that happen right now. Let's pray. And this is my prayer. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. 
so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Jesus, I thank you that by your love and by your grace, when you saw us as humanity fall in the Garden of Eden, when we fell into those three temptations, you loved us. You didn't want us to stay stuck in that sin and in that cycle. And Jesus, because you couldn't stand to see eternity without us, you came down to earth. You became a man. And as Paul said, you lived your life as an example for us to follow. Jesus, you were tempted in every way we are, and yet you stayed true to God's word. Jesus, you studied God's word and hid it in your heart, even though you're the one who wrote it. How much more do we need to do that, Jesus? And Jesus, I thank you that you are Lord of my life. I thank you that I have surrendered my life to you. Even though I try to take it back sometimes, you're always there. And Jesus, I pray if there's anyone within the sound of my voice or listening online or watching online that has not made that declaration yet, that today would be that day. That July 4, 2021, while we celebrate the independence of our nation, we also declare our dependence on you. And we stand firm in that truth. God, we know that signing our names to a piece of paper doesn't really change anything unless we're willing to live it out. And God, in the same way that 55 men in the city of Philadelphia got together and said, we are going to be these United States of America and change the world, I believe with all my heart that the group of men, women, and children who are gathered today in Yankton, South Dakota, when we make that commitment, when we say we're going to be dependent on you, we can change this world. We can live out the principles of your kingdom. God, we don't have to wait for heaven. We can make heaven to come here today. And to see that so that no one, no one in our lives will be able to stand on that day without excuse. And when they bow that knee, God, I pray with all my heart that it will be because they have already chosen you. And that they didn't wait until it's too late. So again, as we close church, as this song is playing, I'm going to invite you to come up here. And, and, and you can write your name on this declaration. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you live in the Yankton area, we'd love for you to join us Sundays at 10.30 a.m. at 310 Walnut Street. Or you can join us live online from our website, yankton.church, or our YouTube channel, Celebrate Yankton. If you'd like to grow more in your faith, check out one of our life groups that meet throughout the week. For a list of days and times, please visit our website, yankton.church. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and share with others.